Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Rana Epting, Executive Director of MoveOn.org, who talks about her group's Stop Funding Fox News campaign, targeting the network's corporate advertisers as they negotiate new contracts for the coming year. Mike Wessler at the Prison Policy Initiative who discusses the Census Bureau policy of counting incarcerated people as residents of prison cells rather than their home communities that distorts political representation. And Andrew Perez, senior editor at The Lever, who examines the right-wing billionaire-funded No Labels Party that's financing a potential 2024 third-party presidential candidate that would likely split the anti-Trump vote. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Climate change in the Horn of Africa is driving the worst drought in 40 years, which has pushed the politically fragile region into a crisis as a million people face the risk of a famine. Rising global temperatures are largely caused by the burning of fossil fuels. And poor regions like East Africa are bearing the brunt of the damage from extreme weather conditions. The Washington Post reports that Kenya, Somalia, and Ethiopia have experienced five consecutive failed rainy seasons. Hotter temperatures in Africa cause more moisture to evaporate from agricultural soil, crippling local farmers and killing valuable livestock. Droughts are 100 times more likely now than in the pre-industrial age. When crops fail, subsistence farmers often don't have the money needed to buy seeds for next year's crops, and cattle herders have no access to insurance. According to the World Food Program, by the end of 2022, 23 million people in Somalia, Ethiopia, and Kenya were severely food insecure, nearly a million children suffered from acute malnutrition, and another million people were forced to leave their homes in search of food, water, and work. Billionaire Harlan Crowe, the Republican superdonor and patron to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, is a dual citizen of the United States and the Caribbean island of St. Kitts and Nevis. The island nation is a tax haven for the super-rich, known for its impenetrable financial secrecy. In 2012, Crow and his family were granted passports through a cash-for-citizenship scheme. In documents reviewed by The Intercept and Project on Government Oversight, Crow and his brother Trammell paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to obtain the passports. Crow was aided by a London consultancy, Henley & Partners, which assists the wealthy elite in receiving golden passports in order to shield themselves from their home country's tax authorities. U.S. Senator Ron Wyden sent a letter to Crow inquiring if his decades of expensive gifts of luxury vacations and school tuition given to Justice Thomas complied with the U.S. federal tax law and ethics codes. In 2005, Crow was involved in a case before the U.S. Supreme Court alleging misuse of copyrighted designs and sought $25 million in damages from Trammell Crow Residential. 
The court, including Thomas, who failed to recuse himself, voted to deny the petition. In the 1980s, Tyson Foods and other major meatpacking companies began a project to vertically integrate their operations to control the whole supply chain, from the farmers who raise animals to the workers who kill them and package the meat. Companies then closed down their plants in union strongholds like Chicago and moved to so-called right-to-work anti-union states like Iowa. These companies recruited immigrants, mostly undocumented, to work the non-union plants. Wages and benefits plummeted, while injuries soared. Over 30 years later, immigrants are organizing to unionize workers at Tyson and West Liberty Foods meatpacking plants. The drive is seeking to organize 2,000 workers, the largest in the meatpacking industry in the U.S. since 2012. During the COVID pandemic, workers were empowered as they engaged in collective action against corporate bosses' greed and disregard for their lives. According to In These Times, the reform leadership at the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 431 is committed to the organizing drive, as is the faith-based community group Escucha Mi Voz, or Listen to My Voice, which has roots in Catholic social justice activism. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After Fox News agreed to pay Dominion Voting Systems $787 billion in a negotiated settlement of the landmark defamation lawsuit, Fox had no obligation under the agreement to admit wrongdoing or apologize to their viewers that they'd lied to. Over many decades, Fox has disseminated disinformation on a range of political and social issues, stoking racism, hate, and fear. But Rupert Murdoch's network's amplification of Trump's big lie, falsely claiming that the 2020 presidential election was rigged and stolen from him, were in large part responsible for the violence and deaths that occurred during the January 6th Trump-incited insurrection and coup attempt to overthrow U.S. democracy. Dominion will be proceeding with additional lawsuits against Trump associates Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Patrick Byrne, and MyPillow's Mike Lindell, as well as Newsmax and OAN. Fox and many of the other Dominion targets continue to face a parallel $2.7 billion defamation lawsuit filed by the Smartmatic Voting Technology Company, alleging that Fox lies decimated its business. As Fox continues to spew its toxic rhetoric, MoveOn.org, the National Grassroots Progressive Political Organization, has launched their new Stop Funding Fox campaign, targeting the network's corporate advertisers as they negotiate new contracts for the coming year. Your reporter spoke with Rana Epting, executive director of MoveOn.org, who discusses the campaign that's now organizing protests against Fox advertisers that includes AT&T, General Motors, and this Subway restaurant chain. The recent settlement of that lawsuit uh, with Dominion changes nothing about the endless stream of 
dangerous lies that saturates Fox News airwaves. So, and I'm thankful for for this suit that that Dominion won because the truth came out. I mean, something all of us listening to here tonight we've known for a very long time that Fox News is not a legitimate news outlet and has been peddling QAnon conspiracy theory that anti-vaccine rhetoric hatred etc for for decades but you know what we saw come out in this lawsuit just proved our point <laughs> proved the point we've been saying for so long and now there should be no question although this lawsuit settled smartmatic is has a lawsuit pending as well and i'm sure there'll be others down the road but uh, a really important point here is that Fox News is at its weakest it's been in in my recent memory. Um, they're really taking a lot of criticism. They've outed themselves. And this is the time for us to all really take action and go straight for the incentives. What are the incentives that are propping up this dangerous, quote unquote, news site um, that is hurting all of us and it's hurting society? So, Fox News lives are fueled by the financial support of corporate advertisers like General Motors, AT&T, and Subway. Every dollar these guys spend and they give to Fox is funding this dangerous rhetoric and conspiracy theories. And then, that, But talk about corporate funders. The thing that really gets my goat is that our own personal dollars that are going to our cable, for us to pay for cable, that is going to fund Fox News as well. So basically, if you pay for cable, you're probably forced to pay about $20 directly to Fox News every year, even if you boycott the channel. And that's because there's a fixed amount per prescriber that comes along with your cable um, payment. And that these companies pass that charge on to you. So there, there are really two focuses on this campaign. One is calling your cable company, demanding that they unfox your box, they take Fox off of your cable subscription and you refuse to pay um, to fund Fox. And then number two is applying pressure on these corporate targets, Subway, General Motors, AT&T, um, and more, to tell them to stop funding Fox, stop funneling corporate ad dollars uh, to this dangerous propaganda network. So. We're, we're turning up the heat. We've got um, some actions planned, and uh, we, we hope that there will be tons of coverage on this. But we've got members organizing, as we speak, several actions outside of these headquarters next week. So this is a critical time, as, as you said, one of the press releases, because new contracts are being negotiated. And as I yeah. understand it, Fox is less dependent on advertisers than are many other cable channels because they get mm -hmm. most of their revenue from these very high fees that they get from the cable providers, right? That is correct. It's like welfare for Fox News. So our, our dollars paying for our cable are going directly to fund Fox News, even if we don't watch the news site ourselves. So, you, so it's really, people can go to moveon.org slash Fox. We've got ways for you to take action on both accounts. But definitely there's the easy way if you go to moveon.org slash Fox will help you um, give you guidance on how to reach out to your cable provider and demand that they take Fox off of your subscription so that we no longer are subsidizing this hate speech. Rana, what's the role of consumer boycotts against these companies that continue to advertise on Fox and directly fund their toxic propaganda? Look, sometimes 
boycotts can be really hard, but boycotts work with Fox News. It, it's worked. It worked back in the days um, when we had Glenn Beck. <laughs> we're able to get a lot of their advertisers off the air, and you're even seeing. Now that Tucker's off the air, you're seeing advertisers come back to that 8 p.m. time slot. You can see that advertisers, they, their bottom line is, a, is the dollar. And if it is not in their best interest to be advertising on Fox News because that's bad for their dollar, then they're going to make different decisions. So corporate boycotts, especially when it comes to Fox News, we've seen work. And that's why we're doing it. We don't tend to do these types of boycotts a lot in our campaigning, but we've seen it work with Fox News. It can work. And if enough people take action, we can pull these these corporate funders down and off of the network. That was Rana Epting, executive director of MoveOn.org. Learn more about the group's Stop Funding Fox campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The U.S. Census Bureau counts incarcerated individuals as residents of the prisons where they're being confined, rather than as residents of the communities they come from. That's called prison gerrymandering, and the practice takes electoral clout away mostly from cities where prisoners come from and bestows more political power to the almost always rural areas where prisons are located. There's also a racial component. As blacks and Latinos make up a disproportionate share of the prison population, and correctional facilities are located overwhelmingly in white areas. Now more states and counties are moving to count incarcerated individuals in their home districts, rather than in prison communities for the purpose of the census. The National Conference of State Legislatures recently put out a new report detailing the experiences and recommendations from states that have implemented reforms in the post-2020 census redistricting cycle. The report makes clear that the distortions caused by prison gerrymandering were created by the U.S. government and that Congress must take steps to address the problem. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Mike Wessler, communications director with the Prison Policy Initiative, about the report and the somewhat surprising jurisdictions that have barred the use of prison gerrymandering among the 1.9 million persons now held in America's jails, prisons, and immigration detention centers. Prison gerrymandering is a problem created because the Census Bureau counts incarcerated people in the wrong place. It counts them as residents of a prison cell rather than as, of, as residents of their home community. And this is despite the fact that people who are incarcerated likely won't be at the same prison for the entire 10-year period They'll be bounced around from prison to prison. They don't consider a prison cell their home. They have no social ties there. They're not likely to remain in that community once they are released. Instead, they're likely to return to where they came from. Unfortunately, this has been the way that the Census Bureau has always counted incarcerated people. This issue first kind of came on the radar about two decades ago. And over the last 20 years, we've worked to um, raise awareness about it and try to pressure the Census Bureau to change how it counts incarcerated people. We've had immense success over the last 20 years. Uh, Right now, about half the country lives in a place, a city, a county, or a state that has taken action to count incarcerated people at home, that recognize that counting incarcerated people as residents of a prison cell um, distorts political representation and wanted to fix it. Uh, This isn't just about numbers. It is about political representation, because when the Census Bureau 
counts incarcerated people at the wrong place. Every 10 years when state and local governments redraw their legislative lines and city or county commission lines, it artificially inflates the populations of communities and areas that contain prisons uh, at the expense of everyone else. And what that ends up doing is it gives residents of those districts that contain prisons greater political clout, more political say in the decisions that are made in our government at the expense of everyone else. The National Conference of State Legislatures looked at the 2020 redistricting cycle and looked at the states that had undertaken these reforms to see how well they did and what their experience was. And the overwhelming consensus among the states was this is important. Making sure that everyone has equal political representation is something that's important and worthwhile doing, but the Census Bureau policies make it harder for us to do that. And the Census Bureau should ultimately change those policies to just count incarcerated people at their true homes. We should say that the people incarcerated disproportionately are people of color and that disproportionately come from more urban areas and that I think prisons overwhelmingly or certainly majority are in rural areas, white rural areas that tend to be much more conservative politically than the areas that people who are in prison come from. Is that right? Yeah, there are parts of that statement that are true and there are, there are kind of nuances about the changing dynamics of incarceration in this country. The one thing that is undeniably true is that prisons tend to be located in rural communities um, that are largely white. And those are the communities that benefit from prison gerrymandering. And they benefit at the expense of everyone else in the state. We've done a series of studies on the states that uh, ended prison gerrymandering to look at where incarcerated people actually come from. And the key finding from those studies is that, yes, the majority of incarcerated people do come from urban areas and are uh, black and brown. That's undeniable, the vast majority of them. But the thing that was interesting was not only did incarcerated people come from literally every community throughout every state we looked at, a lot of times many of the rural communities actually had higher incarceration rates per capita than some of the urban areas, showing that a lot of communities that often are considered conservative are also truly suffering and losing political representation because of prison gerrymandering. So this is an issue that really cuts across the traditional divides of redistricting politics and that every community is suffering from because they're losing a little bit of representation to one specific community or a handful of specific communities that have prison. So to, to kind of sum that up, yes, black, brown, and urban communities are losing the vast majority of people to mass incarceration on a per capita rate. A lot of these poor rural areas are also losing high percentages of their population to incarceration as well. We think there's been immense pressure that's built on the Census Bureau to change its policy, uh, both because more states have taken on these reforms, and this movement has really become kind of a bipartisan movement. You know, just a few weeks ago, Montana, a state that has been in the headlines lately for some fairly conservative policies that they've pushed, nearly unanimously passed reforms to end prison gerrymandering in the state. Um, the Republican governor signed that bill into law. It was not a topic of much debate or contention. It was something that everyone agreed was the right thing to do. That was Mike Wessler, Communications Director with the Prison Policy Initiative. Learn more about the groups working to eliminate prison gerrymandering by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
The 2024 presidential election is shaping up to be a rerun of the 2020 campaign between Democratic incumbent President Joe Biden and twice-impeached former Republican President Donald Trump, the target of several current criminal investigations. But a group of anonymous billionaires and corporate executives under the banner of the No Labels Party have committed $70 million to gain ballot access in all 50 states, laying the groundwork for a potential so-called unity presidential ticket featuring one Democrat and one Republican. No Labels, a nonprofit organization, was the force behind the Problem Solvers Caucus, a group of about 60 conservative and centrist members of Congress. No Labels leaders say their third-party option is an insurance policy that will only be used if the Democratic and Republican nominees for president are not acceptable to their members. The group won't announce its plan for running a presidential candidate until April 2024 and won't have to publicly disclose its donors until that announcement. Democrats worry that a no-labels candidate will divide the anti-Trump vote and boost Trump's chances of winning re-election by gaining a majority of electoral college votes. Your reporter spoke with Andrew Perez, senior editor and reporter at the Lever Investigative News site, who examines this scheme to launch a centrist third-party candidate backed by no-labels dark money serving as a front for Wall Street and other corporate interests. No Labels um, has been around for a while now in D.C., um, and they are um, a corporate front group, sort of first and foremost. Um, though they would probably dispute that. They would, but it's, you know, it's understood that, they, um, uh, that their sort of supporters include a lot of uh, ultra-wealthy individuals in the you know, sort of like financial sector, private equity industry, um, and then and we also know one of their donors um, in the past has been Harlan Crow, who uh, the, the Texas real estate magnate who's been in the news um, because of his uh, providing luxury gifts to his friend uh, Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, uh, gifts that were never disclosed. Um, but, you know, No Labels has been in the news of late because they are um, organizing a uh, ballot access campaign um, nationwide looking to potentially run a third-party unity ticket in 2024 with, with the idea that they would either support, um, they would either field a, a slate of, you know, one Democrat, one Republican, or maybe some independents. Operatives in Washington are, are quite concerned that this, you know, Democratic operatives are worried that this could really kind of help uh, Donald Trump, you know, win, win again in 2024. Um, that it that it could really undermine Joe Biden, who you know is already polling quite poorly um, to start the the 2024 election cycle. Um, but the thing we you know focused on in our story is the the sort of novelty of of what No Labels is doing, um, and they you know they're basically trying to run this uh, giant ballot access campaign. Um, you know, talking they keep citing this number like 70 or 75 million dollars to sort of um, secure access all around the country and, you know, staff up and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they may or may not run a candidate. You know, they're not they're not quite clear yet um, because they actually have some sort of incentive not to really describe that because they're operating under this um, campaign finance loophole that's been uh, built in, in a few past election cycles um, in 2008 and then again in 2012 
that basically allows nonprofits to buy access, to, to secure ballot access around the country without ever disclosing their donors. They're not considered a political party. You know, they're not considered a political anything up until the point at which they decide to uh, formally support a federal candidate for office. So they can actually petition to get a ballot line in states across the country for the presidential election in 2024 and not have to disclose any money until they nominate someone to fill that slot on ballots in various states. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's my understanding um, they wouldn't actually have to disclose money spent in the past, only sort of going forward from that point. So, you know, the, the, the donors who are funding their efforts now to secure this ballot access, their identities will never have to be disclosed. You'll, you'll never have to know that at all. So what's No Labels about? What is their message to the American electorate? What potentially would their message be to support candidates that they nominate to fill that slot on ballots across the country? We've seen this sort of with all of the the sort of unity tickets. There's always this sort of, um, you know, basically message that, you know, the the system isn't working um, and that, you know, it's too polarized, too partisan. Americans are not all that partisan. um, And so they want to create a sort of, you know, groundswell for a moderate ticket. Um, You know, basically the idea being if Americans were given the choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, they might just pick Joe Manchin. You know, that's sort of the premise here. What you're thinking here is, given the track record of no labels, that they would probably nominate someone that would be more likely to take votes away from Democrats than Republicans. Is that kind of what you're seeing here develop from this no label strategy? I think there's a definite sense that, um, you know, Republicans are more firm in their sort of uh, support for very conservative candidates versus Democrats. Like the Democratic Party at this point is more of a big tent party, progressives, uh, liberals, moderates. So they could stand to lose more ground. There's been early polling, too, um, suggesting that this effort would undermine um, Democrats more than Republicans. It's, it's, it is sort of hard to speculate about that, right? But like Democratic groups are definitely taking th- that issue seriously. Like they're, they're, they're treating it like a serious issue that, um, that this would hurt Democrats more than Republicans. That was Andrew Perez, senior editor and reporter with the Lever Investigative News site. Find a link to his article titled America's First Dark Money Ballot Line and Related Analysis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. 
follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, WRFY in Sandpoint, Idaho, Radio Helsinki in Graz, Austria, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.